Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the History of String Sports podcast. This is episode two, part two, where we're going to dive into a couple more string sports and, and kind of talk about what the current state of those sports are. So, Jacob, what is that first sport that we're going to dive into today? We are going to jump into bodybuilding today, Hayden. So the present day in the history of bodybuilding. So, yeah, I just thought I'd start off with a quick quote. Um, Ronnie Coleman, I think it was, who said, everyone wants to be a bodybuilder, but no one wants to lift no heavy ass weights. Um, and I, think, I think that kind of sums up sort of where we are in bodybuilding in the sense that it's probably the most participated in strength sport currently um just simply because of the amount of people who train resistance and weights at gyms um obviously probably not on the competitive side but in terms of sort of the just recreational side bodybuilding is arguably the most participated in um however whether that translates to you know the general public knowing who the top bodybuilders currently are i'm not sure it does i think people like big rami chris bumstead um flex lewis all these kind of big names are, are very well known in the bodybuilding circles but possibly not known to the to the wider public which yeah kind of goes against what we said in the last episode about the strongman it's probably the most well-known sport and has most um, notable names but yeah, kind of contrary to, to bodybuilding being the, the most participated in. Um, I think just from my own sort of viewing and, and kind of observing of, of bodybuilding in the past few years, it's kind of taken a swing back to the classic physique. I don't know if you've noticed that, uh, Aiden, that these kind of, you know, the mass monsters of the 90s, your Dorian Yates, Ronnie Coleman's, Jay Cutler's, it's kind of the popularity swerved more back to the, the classic physique. And I think people are, are really hanging onto that nostalgia of the seventies and eighties with, with, you know, people like Arnold and, and Mike Mentzer and that little bit, a little bit of a smaller, more, um, more achievable, should we say bodybuilding physique, but yeah, I don't know if you've observed that or that's just, just I, my I think that's a really, you know, that's, I do. I, I firmly agree with that as we move forward, like in bodybuilding, I mean, there's going to be peaks, and val- there's going to be waves, you know, it's like, uh, what does it say? What do people say for fashion? Uh, kind of a 30 year cycle and things become mm-hmm. back in the new. And I just think that's where we're at right now with the bodybuilding. Um, I think we'll eventually cycle back to people wanting to see how much muscle mass uh, somebody can put on their body because it's, you know, that's fun too. All right. But uh, eventually, eventually people get, kind of bored with the same routine, I think. And so, uh, and, you know, that's also a thing that simultaneously, you know, I, I love bodybuilding because I can respect every bodybuilder that I ever meet. The discipline that goes into putting yourself on a stage in that readiness is incredible, but it's also such a subjective sport, you know, and it's very, uh, you know, it's very based on a judge's opinion, right? So it's, it's hard for me always to be like, well, I think that person looks better, you know, but that's just, you know, me in this, in the, in the stands looking. And so um, what I have noticed though, is I've, I've um, you know, I've been recently working at a gym called House of Gains here in Texas and talked with a couple of uh, bodybuilders there. And one of them was a good friend that I threw with in college. And he was talking about his wife and uh, she was trying to 
you know, she's an IFBB pro and she, you know, they were just annoyed. It seemed like uh, they're now moving away from uh, like a certain, certain style, one that they've had for a long time. And, uh, you know, now they're, the focus is on other body parts or uh, the focus has shifted to like, uh, I, I guess now when it comes to bikini, they're not looking for any kind of tone like or muscle definition, uh, really. And so that's, a, you know, it's interesting thing for me. Um, I've never been a big bodybuilder because I can't get the discipline down for food, right? But I respect it. But you're, you're, when it comes to the classic physique, which is the physique I like the most, um, you know, I love that, that Arnold big chest, big arms. Uh, what's that? Um, his name's Cal, right? There's a guy named Cal, right? That's kind of got this... Uh, uh, Vaughn, Calvon, I don't remember his name. Ah, uh, Cal, um, Cal, he's got a documentary on, on Netflix, Calvin Mog, is it Mogler? I may be butchering that. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember. I, I'm sure somebody on here knows exactly who we're talking about because they follow him on Instagram, but <laughs> that kind of, you know, he kind of came on the scene and it brought back that Arnold physique and I was just like, cause he just had this like identical Arnold physique and I was just like, yeah, I think that's what people truly want when they think about making themselves look in the mirror. Not everybody, obviously, because I still love the Kai Greens uh, of, of the day that are just like um, really crushing it and putting on this crazy amount of mass, you know, and chemistry is their friend and that's fun, you know. Um, I wanted to, but real quick though, cause I know we have some other notes here around it, but like, what about this shift to, to veganism in bodybuilding though? Have you, have you heard of this? Like, have you seen this? I mean, a lot of prominent bodybuilders are now, you know, going vegan. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm not vegan myself, so I've not seen too much in that world. But I remember seeing the documentary on Netflix, was it Game Changers, which yeah. went absolutely massive. And um, yeah, I think it's definitely a, a lifestyle choice. And I think you're right in what you say about bodybuilding potentially being one of the, the hardest sports out there because it's so 24 seven. And I think that adds an extra, just an extra layer of, of difficulty in terms of the availability of, of, you know, what, what they can and can't eat and things. But um, yeah, it's interesting. That'd be a really interesting po uh, post actually. And you've given me a good idea. Sort of the, uh, the contrast of physiques between vegans and non-vegans and whether, you know, the people who are able to reach the top level having been vegan long-term as opposed to just making a switch in the past couple of years. A couple more like years of data to really be able to like dive into that because, you know, um, you know, Kai Green, I believe he was the, the one that I really think about when he said that the game changers was the, was the, the pushover point for him to go vegan. Mm -hmm. uh, he's not the only bodybuilder by any means, but like, you know, so I would love to see his body, you know, after one, two years of being vegan, as opposed to what it was, you know, at the last Arnold or Olympia that he did, you know, mm -hmm. and so that'll be interesting. Uh, I think Rob Bailey, um, Dana Lynn's like husband, um, you know, he went vegan and he was, I think he had a quote or I think I read something where he was just like talking about like, Oh, like, yeah, no, like, 
you know, I'm not going to lose any size. You know, I'm not going to lose any size. I'm not going to lose any size. I'll, I'll be just fine. I'll be, I'll still get to be big and 300 pounds. And I think now he <laughs> looks, you know, he's, he's 80%, 70% of what he was. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's, you know, if it's healthier lifestyle for somebody, then, uh, obviously go ahead and do it. But, uh, it is just this weird transition in all of sports right now that, you know, is hundred percent plant-based better for, for performance. And that'll be interesting to see how it plays out, Jacob. That's why like something that I'm really interested in seeing over the years. I don't plan on going vegan because I really like meat, but like, you know, I'm, I'm interested in seeing the performance of athletes that are, that are switching to all vegan diet now in all sports and seeing, you know, how they perform in the next year, two years, three years. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll have to get tickets to um, the vegan Olympia 2025. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> See the, the new, the new category. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also yes. Like beyond me or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking on, on categories as well, I think over the past few years, we've had an extension of the, the amount of um, classes that there are to, to be able to, compete in in bodybuilding i think in the 70s 80s there was a, a short and tall class and arnold was in the the tall class obviously um being his height but now it seems to have sort of widened so that if you want to get on stage huge a little bit leaner if you want to wear the the budgie smugglers or the board shorts or go bikini figure bodybuilding for the women um there's kind of a place for everyone which i think is is pretty cool um obviously there's there's weight class and things for for all strength sports and i think bodybuilding's put itself in line with the ability for kind of all genetic body types and the, and the way that you want to look to become, yeah. to become available, which I thought, I thought was quite cool. Um, yeah. And that kind of brings us on to, well, we're going to touch on this a little bit later, but the, um, the whole female side of, of bodybuilding. Um, and this was brought up in a, in a podcast I was listening to with, with Connor Heffernan and Eric Helms, no Marisov um, about the, the history of women's bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. And the um, sort of the quote unquote heavyweight category for the women was taken out in 2014. Um, the bodybuilding for women, um, it just wasn't getting the the traction that it once did. Um, there were questions around the the kind of the aesthetic that the females were achieving, um, and obviously the athletes were left sort of missing out. People like Iris Kyle, who won the the Miss Olympia for, for 10 years, um, now had no outlet to compete in the way that she she wanted to but actually this year it was brought back in um and won by a lady called andrea shaw um and it's great that that's now back in so there's no limits on you know in terms of the female side of the sport of what they can um you know where they can uh, compete and how they want to look i think that's great that there's an equal playing field again after those random six years of <laughs> that being removed that's yeah that's cool. crazy that they could even get away with taken it out for six years you know I feel like when I think about the Olympia I think about you know it's the it's a Super Bowl it's the Olympics of, of bodybuilding right and so you just take women's bodybuilding out of it like that like whew, I'm surprised it's, it, it lasted six years yeah yeah but it's good to um good to have it back and good to level the, the playing field in in terms of that um yeah i think we've got a, a pretty good grasp on uh on where we are in, in bodybuilding now and uh speaking on grasp um should we go into grip sports <laughs> wow the smoothest transition ever <laughs> yeah well um you know you have one note here and i'll let you say that one but first i'll 
I'll tell my story of my first uh, my first competition in grip sports. And uh, so it was probably, I think it was earlier this year. Uh, it may have actually been in December, uh, but there was a gym down south, Liberation Barbell, and um, something that I had never heard of uh, was called arm lifting. And that's mm -hmm. uh, technically the sport that is that it's called here and at least in the u.s is arm lifting and it seems like that's an international name for it as well but you know it's very grip oriented but i wasn't doing anything that weekend and i was like well i've always wanted to test my grip see what i was going so i went down there and uh absolutely brutal like a very young sport right super young i don't think a lot of people know about it uh there were, it was it was amazing to watch because there was such a wide range of individuals there competing uh i had a lot of fun the people were great but uh, you know there was there were people competing in blue jeans and a flannel and there were com people competing you know in their full you know out out outfit kit right and uh i think i wasn't able to stay the whole time i had my son with me and so, but I was able to do the Saxon bar. I was able to do the um, rolling thunder, I believe is what it's, what it's called. Um, and the axle bar deadlift. They also did like this uh, plate pinch uh, with a, a two maybe captains of crush uh, where you like, put a two and a half pound weight or like a, a string and you had to hold it out. And then they also did a, uh, I don't know if it was an anvil uh, holder or an anvil pickup or not, but anyways, it was a lot of fun though. And, um, but I could tell it was such a young sport because I almost broke a world record on my first time going out. Right. And that was on the Saxon bar. And, um, and for people who don't know what a Saxon bar is, there's like, a, it's like a, three inch by four inch like um tube uh mm -hmm. and it might even be four inch by six inch but uh not a tube it's like a it's a box and uh you have to like grasp it with both hands over 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 and you have to pick it up from the ground um but jacob it was it was a lot of fun i will say that my hands were my my forearms and hands were so sore the next day but uh, I was, as I was looking at the world records and like the current rankings, I was seeing names that I actually recognized, like Carl Carl's Myers Carl Myerskopf, who was a who was a big Olympian for Great Britain for a little while. Um, uh, he's definitely aged now to, I mean, probably in his late forties, I would say. But you know, he was this massive uh, discus thrower, and he his he caught my eye. But I will say that that sport is just all around like a level playing field. It doesn't matter if you're bigger than somebody else. Uh, I mean, unless your hands are bigger because the hand size obviously makes a huge difference. But, you know, the truth is, is that uh, I was basically going head to head. You know, I'm 320 pounds and I'm a fairly, I'm a strong individual. And I was going, you know, I was, I was toe to toe with a guy who was, you know, 120 pounds less than me and was lifting the same amount of weight 
uh, as me with his hands. And I was just like, so it was a lot of fun. And uh, like your bullet point that you're about to, to deliver uh, here, it says like, I think it had a lot of growth over the, over like kind of quarantine and COVID because of, you know, it's accessibility. Yeah, definitely. So the, the people you've left everyone on the edge of their seats here. So the, the just the quote is, and I think I stole it from another podcast, as probably I will from with many quotes. But yeah, um, gyms were closed, but Home Depot was open, so you could go and buy nails and bits of steel and things like that. And yeah, whether it's just me diving into obviously all the history over the over the past year or so and in lockdown, but there seems to be this whole underground subculture of of arm lifting and grip sports, and it's just you know you go on Instagram and you see. It's just like men in sheds or, or ladies in sheds just with all these implements just doing really really cool things yeah. um i should probably give a shout out to jerome bloom who's based in the uk and he's like you said he's a he's a smaller guy he's not you know six foot six and 400 pounds he's he's a he's a shorter guy but his forearms are probably the size of my my leg he's just got the most enormous forearms and he i think he holds a few records in some of the more niche um niche type grip things but yeah it's a real cool um it is a cool way to go and it's it's probably a neglected skill and, and aspects of strength like you said you had you know doms in your hands and forearms and you know i really get that from from powerlifting i don't imagine people doing you know other other strength sports and it's probably something that we could all all train on and train anywhere and you know relatively cheaply you know go and buy a box of nails from home depot and away you go world record for hayden yeah and, you know and there's and it's cool because there's a lot of there's a lot of companies popping out now that you know are selling um their own their own nails uh right and i'm not saying that y'all need to go out and uh buy nails that are overpriced by any means you can go to the local hardware store and get some like uh 50d nails or whatever it is that they use most of the time but i will say that it does feel super underground like that nobody knows about it and um, so it's a cool sport to get into if uh, like if you're really looking to get into something that is a current baby. And I say that being competitor in the Highland Games, that like nobody knows much about it all. Like it still feels so much younger than the Highland Games. Well, it is definitely younger than the Highland Games, which is so much smaller. So, I mean, I got an invite to be on the world team after I did three out of five events at a competition. So it shows you like definitely a young sport. I am excited to see where it goes because, uh, you know, when we were at the Arnold last year, I was throwing in the Highland Games. We were right next to the Moss, the uh, Moss Wrestling. Ma, Ma, yeah. yeah, yeah, M-A-S, yeah. M-A-S, Moss. right, Moss Wrestling. I got to watch uh, some of the grip sports there. I went to watch some of the arm wrestling. And um, I was like, you know, there's definitely a platform for people to to get their name out there and to build a, their own you know, kind of brand right now in a sport that's really young that can, you know, they can rise to the top quickly if they're just willing to put in some work. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what the grip sports uh, thing does. Um, I, yeah, I think it, should be some of these events should be in a strongman comp like yeah that's a really good point actually yeah you rarely see like a, i guess it wouldn't be the most unless it's arm wrestling mass wrestling that kind of thing i guess like a penny pinch wouldn't necessarily be the most <laughs> fun thing to watch um but yeah definitely because it's an aspect of strength and you know why not compete 
in it. I, I do think that Mark Felix would probably come along and just Oof, annihilate everybody. With his, it, right? <laughs> the hand size. I swear that guy that so the guy I was losing to all day was in was the guy in the flannel. And he just like had his like shirt rolled up like he just got off of work and his hands. I was like, dude, show me your hands. And his hands were like eight inches, nine inches long. And I was just like, what in the world, man? So hand size and then obviously strength makes a big difference. But it would be cool to watch, you know, a strong man comp have like the rolling thunder uh, and just see how many how much these guys, these massive strongman can can lift off the ground uh with you know with one hand uh whenever that handle is two and a half inches wide and, yeah. and it rolls continuously yeah that's so exciting but yeah that'd be cool a little bit of a throwback to the um the 100 lifts that we you know see a century ago i guess but um yeah that'd be cool excited to see um all right next we've got um coaching so you've probably got a little bit more of a, of a take on coaching, but just from my my own personal perspective, uh, um, I kind of was involved in the strength and conditioning scene for a few years. That's kind of where my initial training was, and kind of by I probably rode the wave of popularity and probably jumped on board because it was up and coming. But from my perspective, it's one of the areas that's really really growing. So when we refer to strength and conditioning, if people don't know, it's sort of applied. It's the applied sports science to increase physical performance through, you know, weight training, speed, agility training, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and especially in the UK, it just seems to be on the up and up. Um, when I got into it, it was pretty rare to, to meet a, a strength and conditioning coach unless you were at a pretty high level um, either athletics club or if you were at a pretty high level um, university. But now it seems like a lot of teams, be it from any sport have a have an snc coach in in some respects and and the salaries that go along with that have have risen and risen and risen um and i think we've probably borrowed from the uk probably borrowed a lot of what's going on in the us in terms of that because you're probably a few years ahead i know people like bill Starr were doing strength conditioning in the 60s and, and writing about it but i think we only caught on um recently so yeah it's uh it's on the up and up so what's your yeah. what's your experience in uh coaching and where it is now so I think right about right around the time, you know, even when I graduated high school, which was in 09, right? Um, I graduated high school. And at that point, only like private, private schools had their very own strength and conditioning coach, mm -hmm. right? And this is a high school, sorry, private high schools. And uh, by that time, you know, long before that time, there was already strength coaches in every university uh, but watching the growth that happened just when I was in college for those four years from 09 to 13 I mean I came out in 13 knowing that if I really wanted to I could wait about a year till 2014 and get a strength conditioning coach job at an at a ISD you know at a high school level mm -hmm. and that was crazy to me because we I mean it was so needed and I think that that's, you know, with the evolution of sports and in general, with the evolution of performance and, um, and understanding what's safe for kids, right? Uh, and then what gets the most bang for your buck. Uh, these schools were starting to invest. And I'm, you know, I live in Texas. Football is king in Texas. And you can ask anybody that, they'll say the same thing. So how do you make your team stronger, faster, 
better, you know, like bigger, it, faster than the other school next to you. Well, that was, you know, it was a race to see who could get a strength coach on board that could put in a structure. And I, I think that they started implementing them from the top down. They, they came in with an administrative level at an ISD level that was a strength coach that handled multiple schools. And that was really like a safety thing. It was an insurance thing to be like, okay, we're not going to hurt our kids. We have someone that is credentialed in this area. But then it slowly started to trickle down where now that person was overseeing the training and education for a strength coach at each one of those high schools. Uh, and then I think, you know, what we're going to even see moving forward is strength coaches at uh, these levels, ha having schools having multiple strength coaches, and then also their current coaches being educated and certified in strength conditioning because there are so many different sports and with those different sports, there comes different positions and different genders, different things to, to, to work on. And so I love where coaching is going. Uh, I think with, a, with a explosiveness of coaching comes a lot of bad coaches or comes a lot of bad practices. But uh, I think all in all, it's like the explosion of technology. Yeah, a lot of things, a lot of things seem bad, but all in all, it's growing at a rate that makes sense. Um, it's gonna, we're gonna be a lot better off for it. Athletes are gonna be a lot better off for it. And, you know, I think we're already starting to see the fruit of that as these kids that have now had a strength coach through high school, you know, 2014 and 2018 are starting to come into college. They're better prepared, you know, their hamstrings are more developed, you know, all these things that are just like, that were just crucial that, you know, God bless most high school coaches at the time, they just didn't, they didn't have the education to understand what the athlete really needed going into college or, or going into their senior year or whatever. And so I think it's really cool what's happening in coaching. And that's, you know, and that's just my strength and conditioning take. Obviously, I'd like to hear more, you know, from you having picked up powerlifting, um, you know, and then I'm assuming that you may have invested in a program or researched a program, maybe the Q method, maybe just five, three, one, like, who was it that you were following when you started that you were like, I want to, I want to replicate their program? Yeah, good question. I think, so I started powerlifting in around quote unquote powerlifting, um, <laughs> the best of, best of my ability, um, kind of 2015, 2016. And that was kind of having, you know, caught the wave of the, the rise of raw really with, uh, with people like Stan Efferding and, and Mark Bell. Um, it's funny, actually, I remember being, a couple of years previous to that and seeing um, equipped benching for the first time. And I just, I was just so confused about what was going on. I was like, is he, is he lifting it? Is he not? Is he like, what's going on? Why is he in a big cage? Why are the nine people around him? I just didn't know what was going on. But yeah, in terms of my experience with programs, I think I followed obviously five, three, one dabbled in, in conjugate. I know you can't call it West side if you're not West side, but um, these kind of programs are like, I really like the, um, the logic of, a, of the cube as well. Um, I haven't invested in a coach personally yet, simply because lifting is my hobby and being the strength nerd that I am, programming is is probably even more enjoyable to me than the actual lifting. So I love every, you know, every six months or so sitting down with a pen and paper and just writing a new program or tweaking what I'm already doing. I think that's the, the most fun part of it. And, you know, it's possibly holding back my progression in some ways, but, you know, for me, that's just the the most interesting part um 
but I think that's another really good point is that we're now getting coaches who are specific to their strength sports. So now you can even go as far as getting a bodybuilding prep coach who will just work with you in the 12 weeks running up to a, a bodybuilding competition and a, a powerlifting peaking coach and all these kind of guys. It's gone very, very specific and people have really honed in on their expertise and their experience. Um, and that's really reflecting in the, you know, the numbers that we're, that we're now seeing um, coming up as well. Um, <clears throat> and that kind of diverts us into the whole whole weird realm of, of online coaching, which as a whole, on you know, the words online coaching probably get a bad rap um, simply because, <clears throat> you know, personal trainers can go and, and pay their, in the UK, it's about £1,200 to get your full PT certificate. And in some cases you can do it in, in eight weeks. Um, and then you can jump on Instagram and be a quote unquote online coach. So it's getting a bit of a bad rap on, on one side of it, but then on the other side of it, you've got the, the guys who hold PhDs. So people like Lane Norton, Mike Isretel, um, Dr. Jordan Shallow, all these guys who are giving out phenomenal online content as well as having the academic side and the current research side behind it. So I think that's now starting to marry up at the top level. And these guys are really differentiating themselves from, you know, the, the quote unquote online coach who's just the dude down the gym who's, uh, who's paid for his PT qualification and, and got that through. Um, I think as well, though, the whole realm of online coaches, as good as it is, because people can then contact who they want to get programs. I think it's taken a little bit away from lifters experiences in the gym. Um, just a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is that I, I meet people all the time who are following an individual program in the gym from someone who they've just been messaging through Instagram. Whereas there's a really phenomenal coach who's based in that gym, giving really good quality advice and coaching from that gym. And it's just a little bit confusing to me as why they wouldn't go that route and just talk to the guy who's in the gym who's going to be able to sort of watch their progress and see how they, you know, each lift and, you know, they can see how they are when they come in. Are they motivated? Is there anything else going on? Um, you know, tweak each sort of lift and watch all the accessories. Um, so yeah, that's just a little bit of a, of a pet peeve of mine. Um, yeah. And, and also it's probably the psychology of uh, why people tend to um, go that route. Cause I have my own feelings on it. Um, I think people tend to personally, people tend to go that route either, obviously this is either way cheaper, uh, mm -hmm. you know, cause a lot of these people, you know, once again, this is not a this is not a blanket statement. Anybody listening, you know, I'm just I'm clearly stating things that have just happened, uh, and uh, that most people should watch out for. Which is when someone says that they're giving you a personalized individual program, yeah, and it's just another template program that they've sent out to you know, a million people. The truth is, is that a personalized program should cost money because. Mm -hmm. There should be a, you know, there should be a discovery call with that individual, understanding what that athlete truly needs. There should be videos of them squatting to understand deficiencies. So when you can do online coaching, like, well, you know, it's possible. Yeah. Uh, but I think a lot of people, you know, tend to either obviously take the route that is much cheaper or the route that leaves them in a, a pathway out to not feel guilty um, mm -hmm. because they never have to see that coach in person. Yeah. Uh, and regardless though, um, 
you know, like you said, a lot of people are lifting for the hobby of it anyways, like yourself, like lifting is a hobby. And I'm sure you want to compete, especially now that you've put some gear on. I, <laughs> I know that you're going to want to do a competition at some point, uh, which has been exciting to watch, man. Been watching you lift uh, some uh, some bigger and bigger numbers. And you're just, I can see the excitement uh, that you get now. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people are lifting for a hobby and um, coaching wise, you know, I would just say that, like, if, if that's, if that is what you're doing, then um, any kind of structured program that you're on, whether it's somebody selling you a template or, or an actual one-on-one, is probably better than what you can develop yourself without doing a lot of research and a lot of background. So, you know, there's always this, like, give and take on my side where I'm like, well, yeah, but also, sure, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and sorry for anybody who just listened to me make those noises and they're just like, I have no idea what he's talking about. But um, I think that experienced lifters or lifters that are looking to, uh, to make a splash or to really compete, um, I'm hoping at this point now, we have been in this world in the social media world and this world of influencers long enough to for them to understand that there are there are real coaches out there and real coaches cost real money because they're putting in their time and their care and their effort into your program. And so I like online programming um, for a lot of reasons. Like everything though, don't don't buy something out of someone out of the back of someone's car. That's kind of the way you have to look at the internet now. Like you got to kind of navigate some certain things with skepticism. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I was listening to some of the other day and it was again about multiplied powerlifting. People can see I'm a little bit biased towards, <laughs> towards that way. Um, oh, I bought my uh, first bench shirt by the way, the other day. So that's happening. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And it, they were just saying that then, possibly the internet and kind of this online coaching world has possibly killed multiply powerlifting because people just aren't training in groups anymore um previously you'd, you'd head to the gym and you know have a chat to the strongest guy there and perhaps join in on a few sets help spot and load and and get involved that way but now people are just they go into the gym with their headphones in grabbing their online plan from their coach and just going at it alone which is which is great um but you know it's kind of had a bit of a detriment to group training and and that sort of old style feel of a gym and, and certainly has, has affected multiply powerlifting a little bit because you need three or four people just to squeeze you into your gear um a lot of the time but yeah i think got anything else on that coaching weight, when you're lifting that much weight multiply wise man yeah i mean yeah. you need you need your team around you you need someone to to pick you up if you get out of that groove you know you lose the groove and and, and something happens so that makes a lot of sense uh, on definitely a, a COVID, you know, a post, post-quarantine life right now that we're living. Um, I think um, it would make me happier if more things moved to raw, personally. I like raw lifting so much. Uh, I think I've expressed this to you in the past, like a personal opinion of mine is that I feel like people tend to go uh, into gear much too soon uh yeah. and 
but like for instance, someone like yourself, you've been training now for years and now you're finally starting to be like, I want to put a squat suit on or I want to put a bench shirt. You put a bench shirt on? Yeah, you said. No, not yet. No, it's not yet. Okay. On its way. Like, on its way. You put a squat suit on and uh, <clears throat> you feel that now, but you have this like foundation and um, I always had an issue with uh, people, you know, starting, you know, having a training age of six months and then getting into multiplied mm -hmm. gear and then lifting, you know, three, like twice their body weight. And I'm like, mm, you shouldn't do that. Like, yeah. uh, I don't care how much the gear keeps your, you know, joints in line, like you should build a better base. But um, I do like a certain aspect, more of a niche, not as strength sportsy, but a part about online kind of programming and coaching now is that I think we've seen, you know, in just the expansion of coaching now, uh, outside of just string sports, I think we've seen this like increase in like prenatal like uh, training. We've seen this increase in like postpartum training in women, uh, like how to, um, you know, how to navigate those times of a woman's life, but also like in general, like there's so many different types and styles of training now. Everybody, everybody can find a niche. Uh, you know, and through that, I think you've got, we've gotten a lot of experts in these areas that people can dive into to say like, okay, my pelvic floor is messed up because I had a child. You know, this is just an example because my wife did have a child recently. And so like, you know, and prolapse was a really serious concern at some, at some level. And so, mm -hmm. you know, strengthening, um, strengthening all that was a big, you know, big deal and there are now experts out there you know that do training that have free resources but also that you can like purchase a program for to help with that so you know outside of strength coaching you know outside of the traditional strength sports i like where coaching is going because like they're it's expanding to these realms that you know people have found their niche in order to make their brand and make their mark but in as always though it's really helping a lot of people that way and so that's exciting to me yeah yeah, yeah completely agree completely agree so i'm gonna make a segue off what you were just talking about and uh strengthen and women <laughs> going into talking about women in strengths but i'm just trying to outdo your segue from the last episode I thought was, <laughs> well i tried to set it up for you i'm just saying uh, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah women in string sports man these are these are my favorite type of women dude i love women that i love strong women and um you know i think that what we're seeing is this revolution of women uh, in, in string sports. And wow, it's so powerful. I know that you've probably seen uh, the Instagram pages. You look like a man. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, some of the uh, clothing lines like Girl, G-R-R-R-L. I don't know how many R's there are. But, you know, um, that are both like, those are two powerful companies that are there to just like really empower women to do street sports. Yeah. And uh, I, I love where all that's going. 
Um, I can't wait for hopefully our next podcast guest because she was this strong woman uh, that's going to get to that's going to talk about her sport and uh, kind of the no no f's given type of mentality of like this is you know this is what I love to do this is who I am uh, and so seeing the rise and I can talk about Highland Games but I know we got a lot of bullet points here so you know what have you seen you know women in strength so far yeah so kind of from a, a historical perspective it's it's been a little bit varied across the the strength sports um we see sort of the rise of women's bodybuilding kind of hit the scene in the in the late 70s early early 80s powerlifting was actually the most inclusive the most quickly with the work of jan todd um so when powerlifting sort of established itself as a sport in the mid 60s women were were knocking at the door right away to, to compete have have their own competitions they started competing with the men um initially and then and then i think it was oh people are gonna kill me if i get this wrong but i think it was 78 no 68 females had their own competition um so they were really really early to catch on um whereas on the flip side of it women's weightlifting didn't enter the olympics until 2000 um a mere 104 years after the the men were battling it out in uh, in 1896 um which is uh, yeah a little bit of a, a difference there yeah so the yeah the spectrum of uh, of timelines of, of women's inclusivity in strength sports which is only really just sort of leveling out and um actually probably crossfit um took a lead on this with sort of equal prize money with at the top level of the sport from from the get-go um when the when the crossfit games came in, in in 2007 so yeah they kind of led the way and i don't know the ipf the quote-unquote gold standard of powerlifting equipped lifters will hate me for saying that but um yeah they've now got equal weight classes across male and females um obviously the the miss olympia is back um which is great as well um yeah female participation as a whole is just on the increase which is which is phenomenal so what have you seen in highland games in terms of women's participation top level that kind of thing i think that women in highland games is definitely the fastest growing sector of highland games it's exciting to see uh, more and more women are coming out to try it out to participate um luckily at this point in the sport we have this like great group of top women throwers that are extremely inclusive and like are there to just like help um but still to this day there's no women's pro class in the high okay. and uh so you know every woman that throws is quote unquote an amateur right yep. and so you know even though there are women out there that have you know the jamisa um and I'm blanking on her last name, but Jamisa is an ex-college thrower that was the first human in history to throw over 100 feet with the lightweight for distance. Over 100 feet. That's a 14-pound weight that she threw over 100 feet. And that was, you know, and it was before a man ever did it, before anybody in history has ever done it. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more talented women come into the Highland Games they obviously deserve that spot up at the top. Uh, I think what's cool is that uh, these games that are attached to major festivals are starting to really uh, say, okay, but 
you know, we, we want to have pro men, but we also want to have a pro women's class. Mm-hmm. And so these athletic directors um, are, are getting the chance to explore like a women's pro class. And so that's exciting for me. Um, and that's exciting for the sport in general. Um, we also get to see, we also have gotten to see a lot of youth involvement and through the youth we've seen a lot of like younger girls come out to throw and that's been a lot of fun because uh, I've always I've always said that like especially even in track and field uh shot put discus javelin hammer they're overlooked by a lot of female athletes that like like especially to get them to college you know there's a lot of there's a traditionally track and field teams women track and field teams in college have more more scholarships to give out. And so if you're a good thrower, there's a very good chance that you can get some financial money for being good at throwing. And so I think that's cool on like a personal level for me to see as I've coached young female throwers and gotten them to college, like being able to see it happen even earlier in their lives, being introduced through the Highland Games. So, um, you know, that's, that's really cool. Now, if we could just stop the kind of misogyny around uh, bagpipes not being for women, uh, that would help. But, you know, overall, the sport, like I said, the fastest growing sector of Highland Games is definitely women. And we're, games are becoming more inclusive for master level women, the 40 to 50, the 50 to 60 and 60 plus uh, by, by having additional implements that are uh, different different weights so that they can participate and still like at a and safely you know because 28 pounds is a lot for uh you know a 57 year old woman to just be tossing around and so the we're becoming more inclusive by adding these newer implements and kind of changing the game and i would say a lot of that's due to like kind of the tide rolling over like we've talked about in i think previous episodes of highland games there's just like pressed there's this wave cresting right now. And so it's kind of bringing in a lot of new blood to the sport, mm-hmm. taking out, uh, you know, a lot of people are kind of retiring from it. And so uh, it's cool to see. And I think that's a reflection of strength sport, like women in strength sports in general. Like it's really this cool wave that's starting to come, you know, and it's cresting and it's going to be excited to see. I'm, I'm excited to see like, you know, kind of, what kind of experience and culture women bring to string sports. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds weird to say, but I think that the media especially has only just sort of started, you know, publishing, you know, images of women sweating and straining and, and things like that, which I hadn't thought of until someone raised the point with me. And I, I thought, yeah, actually you're right. You know, you go back in newspapers and sport and things and you know it's always the with females they're they're picked for a photograph in you know the perfect um sort of position where everything's you know looking good there's not a hair out of place and and things like that and it's just bizarre to to think that you know men are are seen to be or portrayed certainly as competitive sweating straining being really you know going for it and then the images of the women are completely on the on the flip side and i think that's changed in recent years which is which is great and and the media is portraying women in you know as they are that athletic and and competitive um just like the men and always always have been so there's never been a difference but the media has has made it so which is just bizarre so 
yeah, I think that brings us nicely on to talking about how strength's portrayed in the in the media um, or how it isn't portrayed in the media. And I think the, the thing that sticks out in my mind that I can't find it, I've been trying to look for it for ages, but there was, um, it was on t- TV when, um, it was when I think Big Z broke the world log press record. It was reported on TV as a deadlift. And I think that kind of summed up <laughs> where we are with it. And it was by, you know, a big news outlet, CNN or, or something like that over in the States, I believe. And it was just that lack of, and it's not their fault, it, just because strength sports aren't, you know, necessarily as mainstream as, as some of the other sports that they publish, but it was just published incorrectly and would have just taken a quick google search to find out what the the actual name of the the lift was and they just you know assumed every lift done was a a deadlift which i thought was was quite funny but we still don't really see strength sports on the on the back pages of newspapers or you know broadcast live on espn um but we're certainly certainly getting there and i think although that kind of old media is is shifting it's still strength sports are still on the on the fringe on the niche niche side of things um I think the, I the education is a large piece. I think you said it right there uh, with, the, with that story. I mean, in Highland Games, we kind of have a thought process where um, it does not matter if you threw the world record with the 56-pound weight. Why? Because the world record is about 51 feet. And so people don't care nearly much, as much, you know, general population person that's going to watch our sport, they don't care nearly as much about something that goes 51 feet as something that goes 100 feet, right? Yeah. Because it's just a more spectacle factor. And so I feel like as uh, what the sport that's done that the best, you know, besides bodybuilding, where you can look at someone and see their results, you know, strongman has done the best at slowly moving you know slowly making events look more like um commonplace so like you know how many kegs can one toss over because somewhat like a regular individual like that watches can go see a keg and try to pick up a keg or like they can imagine what a keg would feel like Mm -hmm. Uh, i think it's hard when someone just sees um plates on a bar uh, yeah, because they're like, yeah, that's a lot of weight, sure, but doesn't look that crazy, and so that's you know, but that's like, that's a common thing that I hear, that I hear, I feel like all the time is you know this interesting narrative that they just <laughs> that they just don't really understand um, the complexity or the power that it takes to generate. Uh, you know, half Thor throwing the 56 pound weight over 21 feet, like in the air to over a bar, right? I mean, if you were to line up two basketball goals though and have him throw over those basketball goals, that would be more impactful. And so, but in general though, I think strongman does it the best by, by doing events that look spec- spectacle-ish. And uh, yeah. as we move forward in the media, like that'll bring a lot of attention is if we can do more things like that. If we can, you know, when, when strong men walk with a car strapped over their shoulders, right? That has impact. Yeah. And that's uh, really cool to me. And 
I think that other sports can, you know, if they want to grow to the level, um, they can put more exhibition type events like that into their repertoire to just really add more spectacle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that sort of reminds me of just watching World's Strongest Man as opposed to the Arnold Strongman Classic. I think there's just a difference in popularity, like not a lot of the general population, even though the Arnold exists as a strongman competition, yet everybody knows World's Strongest Man because, you know, in the first one, they were running with freezers on their backs. They've carried cars, they've flipped cars, they've wrestled each other. Uh, you know, there's Bill Kazmaier Sumo wrestling, you know, and other athletes and just this spectacle that, that goes on. So, yeah, I completely agree. I'm not sure how they're going to do that but yeah it's, it's probably probably needed um but it's certainly on the on the rise in terms of the reporting and the, the publicity and the media and, and things and i think that's probably also in part to do with the fact that the the quote-unquote gatekeepers of strength media has seems to be on the on the decline so before you know the the internet and, and social media and things like that you'd only hear about these feats of strength in you know the strength and health magazine powerlifting usa um later into you know the muscle magazines but now things are captured instantly and, and uploaded like we know the results of this year's world's strongest or last year sorry world's strongest man instantly rather than having to wait till christmas <laughs> to see it on tv in the uk and i think those kind of gatekeepers have been eliminated which is great because it allows us to do things like this so we can have a chat and make the world's best podcast just um just with, <laughs> with <us. laughs> Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. Um, and yeah, like you said, definitely on the rise. And um, yeah, it'd be good to get more eyes on the sports. And I think just bigger picture, we're still at the infancy of all strength sports, really. I mean, we're only 100, 120 years into then being organized as a, obviously Highland Games accepted, probably uh, ex an exception. Um, but yeah, into the organized sports that they are today. So I think we're at the very beginning um, and it can only get, only get bigger from here. Oh, Island Games isn't organized. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. There you go. But um, yeah, I think you're right. It's still it's still young, and uh, I think it's cool. It's gonna be cool. It's gonna be cool to see what technology does for sports because you know technology has exponentially increased over the years. You know, as we talked earlier about the vegan diet. You know, I'm excited to see what that does to people's performance. I'm excited to see um, what new training methodologies come up, you know, that happen that come from different sources that, you know, that haven't even been invented yet. Um, I'm excited to see what grip sports turns into, you know. Um, grip sports is one of those things that they can do spectacle type stuff, you know, like how cool would it be to try and lift a car with just one hand? you know, or, 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 you know, these type of things that um, I believe uh, can really push strength sports into this, um, into this, into the state of what they need to be now. Um, I'll take my own TikTok experiments as an example. I can post all day on TikTok, but the moment that I post uh, me doing the sheaf, which is the event where you put the pitchfork into the burlap sack, right? And you try to sling it up as high as you can, right? Something, there's something fascinating to people about that. There's something like, it's just, it's interesting. Like, it's not just me throwing a rock. It's me using a pitchfork to throw a burlap sack over, like try and throw it 40 feet up in the air, right? That gets crazy 
more engagement than anything else. And so um, I think as string sports increase in popularity, those type of things will be cool to push them over the edge. I wanna see more exhibition type stuff. I wanna see more, this is a personal thing. You know, I just, I wanna see more um, drama, man. That's what I wanna see. I wanna see more drama in the sport and uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, bachelor, bachelorette drama. I just wanna see, I wanna see us display strength sports for how wondrous they really are. Like, I want to be able to portray to people how crazy it is for someone to deadlift, you know, 900,000, 1,100 pounds. Like, what kind of craziness that is, right? Yeah. And so that's, um, yeah, that's pretty much my take on, on string sports. And this was, this, was, this was good. I think we covered most everything besides uh, Olympic weightlifting, which we have a surprise for everybody, I think, coming up very soon if not the next episode then the episode after that so yeah stay tuned yeah cool all right let's uh yeah let's bring this one in for a landing so um yeah thanks for listening this was episode two sorry part two of episode i'm getting confused we've only done three episodes i'm lost already (laughs) 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 part two we took a hiatus for people part two of episode two thanks for listening to the uh, history of strength sports podcast and we'll uh, see you in the next episode